Hi there, everybody. Hi, guys. On this Tuesday, that is not just like any other Tuesday. But it's not Tuesday. Welcome on this Monday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh, oh God, I love this man. <laughs> oh, God, I love him. He's been can back you believe here. I talk for a living? I mean, what? Yes, really? That's I can. insane. I can. He has been back <laughs> here at this desk the entire morning, except when he stopped to make a quick sandwich. So yeah. I know you just got yeah. a lot of stuff. I do. Head. Anyway, it's Monday. It's Monday. And it's Patty's birthday. Woo! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yes, yes, and I am so excited that we're starting Isaiah. And I do want to thank Rich Morgan for that because I personally have asked Scott to do this course a number of times and he has told me, no, honey, it's not the right time. So I am so glad this is it. And sadly, though, I have a very important meeting up at St. Andrew at 4 o'clock, and I've got to leave here at 3.30 See, today. See, on the day we're starting Isaiah. Oh, but I, I can know. give you a private tutoring oh, session. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of the benefits of being married yes. to the teacher. Yes, okay. yes, yes, that's it. So anyway, you look great today, babe. Well, thanks, honey. You do, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, okay, well, we're going to do Isaiah today, and the sun is out, the Gorgeous temperatures out. are rising, you know, we, we stick out a few piles of sleet we in do. places, yeah, we where do. the sun never shines, as, <laughs> as they put it. <laughs> we do, we have this little spot in the way our house is designed in the front, coming out in front of one of the garages, it, it, it will have to be like 70 before that melts. Because <laughs> it blows in there yes, and it piles up thicker. into what... We would call a Texas drift. Yes. Right. <laughs> but then it just sits there until yeah. it really it takes a while because the sun never touches it. So anyway, enough of this silliness. It's great. So glad that y'all are here. Um, we have some people today that I think um, are new or haven't been with us a while. That is great. Yes. And and please tell people what we're doing. Point out to them that obviously not everybody can be here at three p.m. But you can you can participate um, by watching it on Facebook Live. It'll be up. It's up on YouTube Live. YouTube recordings, not okay. So how would live. somebody find it? Let's say somebody has a friend, and tomorrow that person would like to look this up. Do they just look under look, Scott Scott? Yeah, they could put just Scott Engel in in YouTube. Or the best thing to do is take the Friday email I send out. But it's if got the links in it. They're brand new and they don't have that. Well. Okay. Let me know. Send your Raise your hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and on, on my website, the links are all there on the class page okay. at scottangle.org. So there, we Please. we can get people hooked up. And of course, there's a podcast that it's just the craziest thing how many downloads there are of that. So, so anyway, true. everybody. Okay. So I'm going to pray so we can get started with this. What do you yes. think? Yeah. Yes. I'm anxious. Good luck with it all, honey. Yeah. At least I'm not leaving you with a little puppy here today. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Let's pray. That was a disaster. <laughs> oh, not really. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are so grateful to be here today. We are starting something new that's always kind of fresh and exciting. We're going to start this journey through Isaiah, this very important. It was important to the Jews of Jesus' day, the most prophetic, the most important of all the um, Scrolls of the Prophets. It's it's almost Christian scripture in, in, in how it's been read for 2,000 years. It is a long journey. It's a long scroll, a long uh, collection of writings. But we know that your Holy Spirit will be with us as we undertake this journey. 
and we pray that you will use it to bind us together and to help us to come to know you and Jesus better and your love for us all. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. Okay. Go get him, Tiger. <laughs> You're in rare form today, oh, aren't I you? Know. You only turned 64 once. Yes. Patty's still humming that, that Beatles song, too. At random moments, she will have Alexa play it for her. <laughs> Patty has a pretty good relationship with... Oh, I shouldn't, can't even say the name because she's sitting over there on the other side of the office. On a, on, yes. Yeah. You know so who. The little I, you white box. You know who. You, yes. can't, you can't utter her name. That's a name that cannot be uttered. All righty. So I'm going to take... I have a little coffee here. I'll be taking a sip of once in a while for those who are listening to the podcast. If you get a moment of silence... That's what it's about. Nothing significant. Okay, so what I've, I've, um, what I want to do is kind of walk through an introduct introduction to to Isaiah, um, so we can just sort of begin to get our feet grounded. We'll be doing more of this as we go along, because it is a very long um, book, a very long scroll, and actually, it's really almost we you should view it kind of like a library. The, the entire Bible is a library. Well, the scroll of Isaiah is really like a library as well. And there are, there's more than one contributor to it. And there are different voices that you hear from different times. But they're all, um, would, they all would count themselves as disciples of Isaiah, um, um, which is referred to. Isaiah talks about his disciples. Uh, a bit in the in the book. So anyway, let's just plunge in. I've got a few slides, so I'm going to scoot behind the the slides here for a few minutes. Not that one so much. Not even that one so much. Though I do like it. You know, it's just kind of I don't know artistic. So this is an Old Testament timeline. If you look down at the lower left hand corner on your screen, you can see I put it together quite a long time ago. How old is that? Whoa, 2001. Wow. That's a long time. 21 years ago. You yeah. were just getting started yeah, on this that, thing. This was probably like the first year of Bible Academy or something. This was a, I put together a few timelines. Because I want you to see where Isaiah falls in this. Okay, so um, just kind of, you don't have to worry about all the details in this. I, I maybe should have brought one with fewer details, but in any in any event... If you look on the right-hand side, you see Jesus. And if you start working backwards, you come to uh, uh, an important vertical line that represents the return from exile um, under Nehemiah and Ezra. And then if you work further back, you get to Judah in exile in 587. And if you work further back, you get to 721, which is when the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom. And it is during that time, in the late 8th century BC, that Isaiah worked as a prophet. And he worked as a little J. If you look down inside the circle, I put Isaiah slash J, because he is a prophet to the southern kingdom. Not to the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom. Because if you remember, um, after the death of Solomon, 
the ten northern tribes separate themselves from the tribe of Judah, and they set up a separate kingdom they called Israel um, in the north. And this is a simple map that shows, I like the colors because they're different. So you can see the northern kingdom, you can see the southern kingdom. Um, uh, the fact that there simply were two. The northern one is called Israel most of the time in the book of Kings. You will often find in Isaiah that the northern kingdom is referred to as Ephraim, which is one of the twelve tribes of Israel. The Ephraim and Manasseh are the two sons of Joseph, of the whole magic technicolor dreamcoat stuff. Their, their tribes each get an allotment of land when the, when, when um, uh, the Israelites move into the Promised Land. And you'll find that the prophets will use the name of one of the tribes to refer to the whole of the north. And Isaiah typically calls it Ephraim. So it gets confusing, but we'll sort all that out. Anyway, there you we do, go. You do have a question. Linda, um, uh -huh. Linda was wondering, can you put some of these slides on your on your page, on your website? I'm not sure if she's talking about the map or the one right before that you had on Well, there. I sure will. I sure will. Linda, which exactly one I'll, were you I'll do them all. About? Okay. Uh, it's ah. easy for me to do them all. All righty. So I'll, I'll put them all there. And um, sure, I can do that. And I'll just, because I'll just make a place and then I'll send out the link or something. Okay, but it'll be on the classes page at scottengel.org. That's where it will be. Okay, so, now, we're going to find out right at the beginning of the scroll of Isaiah that Isaiah basically spans four Israelite kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And I went ahead and put the Assyrian emperors on this slide as well to drive home the point that a lot of what happens, particularly in the first portion of Isaiah, it's concerned with what are we going to do about Assyria, right? What should the king of Israel, what should the king of Judah do about the, the Assyrians? And um, sometimes Isaiah's word from God is followed by the king, Hezekiah does that. Ahaz, however, does not. And that story will all unfold as we move through the scroll of Isaiah because there are actually some storytelling narrative parts of Isaiah. Everything we know about Isaiah comes from the book of Isaiah. There's one portion of Isaiah, um, a couple of chapters long, that is included in the book of 2 Kings. And if you compare them, it's it's basically all the same stuff. Same narrative, same storytelling of King Ahaz and then King Hezekiah. Hezekiah's illness is told in the book of Kings, 2 Kings, and it's told in the scroll of Isaiah. So I decided there was no reason to read about Isaiah in the book of Kings. We might as well wait and get it all in the scroll of Isaiah. Okay? That makes sense to me. So that's that's what we're going to do. All right. So <clears throat> I just, you know, so why did I put this slide? So you could see the time frame. The year 721 is really important. 
721 BC is when the Assyrians overran that northern kingdom. 721. Early in the reign of Hezekiah, the Assyrian Empire overruns the northern kingdom and the ten, lot, ten tribes are just scattered and lost and never to be reconstituted as tribes. And so for a prophet like Isaiah, working, bringing God's word to the king of Judah, Hezekiah, what are they to do? Everybody figures, well, gosh, the Assyrians are going to fall in on the southern kingdom as well, and they're all going to be wiped out. And so that's that's going to be a big overarching question in, in um, particularly the first portion of the book of Isaiah. Okay, so let's go back to my little slides here. So these slides, this, this type of slide, we're going to use a lot in this because it's hard it's hard to in your mind to bring to bring structure to Isaiah. And if you read different commentaries, they each of them has their own way of approaching Isaiah. So this is one commentary by a man named Ross who who and it's nice and straightforward and I could understand it and so I figured if I could, we all could. I guess y'all could probably understand stuff I couldn't, but anyway, it makes sense to me. So here's, here's the beginnings. The scroll is 66 chapters long, but there are three major portions of it. The first portion, chapters 1 to 39, is a critique of the world and of God's people and of Judah and Jerusalem. I guess in a business world, we're called it a statement of the problem, right? Um, it's a world and a people that have gone wrong. And that, that has just come back to time and time again in that opening section. Because, of course, if you've been in my classes long, I, I often will say that the Old Testament is a story of tragedy, right? The tragedy is the people tell God, yes, we are your people. We will make this covenant with you, God. Yes, we will love you. We will love our neighbors. We will be faithful to you and all the rest of it. And they just don't. They just don't. And it creates this enormous problem for God. Yeah, it creates problems for themselves, but it creates an enormous problem for God because God wants to be reconciled with his people. He wants to put things right. And that story that tension, that problem will end up being solved in Jesus, right? So that's why even from the first chapter of Isaiah, as a Christian, you, you can see the problem being set up and you know that the, that the solution is Jesus. Right? So it, that, that's what helps to shape our reading of, of, of Isaiah in many ways as almost, as almost Christian uh, scripture. So, then that's the first section. Chapters 1 to 39, that comes from the time of Isaiah. Okay? The second section, chapters 40 to 40, 55, are chapters, um, a lot of beautiful poetry in it, stark poetry acknowledging the pain and grief 
that comes with a lost world. It's sort of the pain and grief that follows the first 39 chapters with, with yet glimmers of, of promise and hope. When John the Baptist announces the coming of the Messiah along the banks of the Jordan River, he turns to Isaiah 40 for that word of promise brought to a world in pain and grief. And chapters, that second section comes from the time of the exile, comes most, nearly all people who, who, who study Isaiah acknowledge that this section, this portion comes from the time when the um, Jews are in exile in Babylon. And I'll just tell you, it just make, once I read, once, once I learned that, then it all just becomes breathtaking. Because you realize it's coming up from a people who are at the bottom. They're experiencing the worst of the worst of the worst. The Book of Lamentations. Open that up and read a paragraph or two and you will grasp how dark the world is. And yet these words come acknowledging the pain and grief, not just sweeping them away, pretending it isn't there, which is sort of like, you know, sometimes people want to do in our lives. They they, they think there's something wrong with grieving or they won't let you grieve or or they won't acknowledge the pain that you're in. It's like Christians. Oh, we're Christians. We're all filled with hope and joy and so we can't ever experience pain and grief. Well, that's not how it is. That isn't true. Just go to Jesus in Gethsemane and you can, <laughs> you can, you can see the falsity of that statement. So the middle section... Um, is about acknowledging this pain and grief. And the last section, which may also come from the time of the exile, this is where people disagree a bit, but it is the section that is filled with imagination about a world put right, right? So these, um, uh, when Jesus rises in Nazareth and asks the scroll of Isaiah to be handed to him, and he says, well, you know, um, God has anointed me, the Spirit has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind and release to the captives. What is he reading from? He's reading from Isaiah 61. Arthur loves to quote Isaiah um, 65 and 66 about the new heavens and the new earth. That's the imaginative portion that closes the book of Revelation to where you just have to have a big mind, big heart, big imagination that can expand to see what God can do to put the world right. Okay. All right. So, three sections. We'll, and, and when we come, when we're in each one, we're going to break it down a little bit more so that we can make it, what? Digestible. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that word before, but yeah, digestible. Or otherwise, you end up just getting kind of lost in it, honestly probably a really good word because quite often you say you have to take um, scripture and chew on it. Yes, yeah. yes, because this is a couple times, as, you know, like Elijah is told to take this scroll and eat it, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Right, take the word of God and eat it. So, all right. So, back to my slide. Now, there are, there simply are multiple voices in the book of in the book of Isaiah, okay? The first verse is written in the third person. It's written about Isaiah. It's not from Isaiah, it's written about Isaiah. 
So even in the opening section, you do meet Isaiah himself, the ambassador, the prophet, as it were. But you do hear the voices of, of his disciples. Somebody's writing down a lot of this and to bring to us the visions of Isaiah and the rest of it. Do we know how? No. Is it all nice and orderly and neat? No. It's, it's, it's compiled and we're not sure from exactly where, but it is all the scroll of Isaiah. That, that, that middle section, um, acknowledging the pain and the grief, uh, John Golden Gay said it's, it's the prophet's, the poet's voice, voice that you hear there. The section with the suffering servant, you know, it's just, it's like Jesus' resume, but it's written so powerfully. It's the voice of the poet um, acknowledging the pain and the grief that has been endured and through which the world will be redeemed. And then finally you get the preacher. The preacher part is the last section of it, and the preacher is the one who is preaching about what God is going to do. And, and uh, that is, as I said a minute ago, the, the, the portion that Jesus uh, choose, reads from when he rises in Nazareth on that Saturday in Luke 4. So, the fact that there are multiple voices, that Isaiah had disciples, probably accounts for why the book is so long, for one, um, but it, it, it also probably contributed it to it being so influential in Judaism. It was referred to by the rabbis more than any of the other prophetic scrolls. Um, it is the most influential scroll in its, on, on the development of Christianity and Christian theology, our understanding of Jesus. When we get to Isaiah 52 and 53 in the eyes, suffering servant, you're going you're gonna to see Jesus written on every line there, right? And you're going to be stunned and amazed. I am every time I go there. So um, I think all of that helps to make this such a, such a powerful such a powerful work. So we're going to talk as not going to do all this today because I do want to get started. Actually, couple of couple of big themes. And there will be more that I will introduce you to in in coming weeks. So let me go back um, here. So in chapters one to thirty nine, um, you can break it down into three pieces. Okay, and the first pieces where we're going to be today and for a few weeks are Judah's sickness and its causes and what the heck do we do about the Assyrians. That's really what these opening 12 chapters are about. Then there's a section, if you look down the page here on 13 to 27, where it talks about Yahweh being the sovereign of all nations. We may not read every verse of that section because what he does is he goes to all the neighbors of Israel and pronounces judgment on each one and it gets very redundant. And we may just hit the highlights of Edom and Moab and all the others, Ammon and all the others around them. But you're left clearly understanding that Yahweh is the sovereign of the whole world, not just Israel. And then the last section is 
looking ahead, you see, a righteous king will reign. A branch from the stump of Jesse. So anyway, it's it's there is structure to it, and 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 we will take a look at that as we go through. So let's see. Okay. Um, Susan is asking, are you going to be looking at the NIV or NRSV for this class? We'll use the NIV, you know, just because I think it's what most people have. You know, I, I, I use, I have here open in an NRSV, and then I'm reading from an NIV. I sort of use the two together and, and let them be a check on, on each other. So, the Holy One of Israel. There we go, the Holy One of Israel. That is the phrase that Isaiah is famous for, for referring to God. 27 times God is referred to as the Holy One of Israel, which lifts up God's otherness. Because the word holy refers to, refers to who, what makes God God. That's the best way to put it. It's what makes God, God. God's holiness, God's purity. Um, God's, God shines like the sun. God's, God's goodness. All of that is captured. And, and God is, God did come to Abraham. And so Isaiah speaks of God often is the Holy One of Israel. And so we'll encounter that even today. The first, the first use of that phrase is today. And the second theme that we will keep an eye on throughout the book is um, summarized in Isaiah 56, which we will get to a long time from now, I'm quite sure. But look at what it says. This is what Yahweh says. Maintain justice. Do what is right for my salvation. This is God's saving of Israel is close at hand. And my righteousness, this is God's righteousness, will soon be revealed. So that's kind of like a thematic statement about Isaiah. And it focuses on, a, in, in, um, in Isaiah, the unity that, is in Isaiah that comes from a focus on doing what is right. It begins by focusing on God's righteousness, and as the book moves on, there's more, even more and more about us doing what is right. But even in chapter one, you will see that there is, there is a lot there about what the people have not done, which tells you a lot about what they should be doing. Okay, so that's all the introductory stuff I brought for today. We will spend time um, in the coming weeks as we need it in the structure. I'll probably have the, the structure slide somehow in there at the beginning of every, of every week so we can try to stay, you know, sort of stay on the map, as it were, about, about what, where we are and where we've been and where we're going. That's just, I think Isaiah's a book that it's easy to get to get lost in because the prophets are are a challenge they're not like mark where mark mark 
is going to put down the eyewitness testimony of Peter. He has a story to tell. He starts at the beginning, boom, 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 all the way through to the end. One thing leads, leads to the next, all the way to the end. It's not like Paul's letters. He sits down to write. He's going to take problem A, problem B, problem C, problem D, boom, 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 all the way to the end. The prophets are kind of all mixed together. You get these messages, and it's, 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 you anybody needs help. Anybody needs help. So don't, you know, many of you have expressed frustration to me in the past about you want to read Isaiah, but you start, and pretty soon your head is swimming because you just, how do I put these pieces together? Well, sometimes they go together, sometimes they don't go together. And sometimes he has ways of speaking about things that aren't immediately obvious. So, but I think as we go through here together, because I'm going to learn a lot in the course of this journey, let me tell you, because um, I've never done Isaiah, anything like this before. So, so this is going to be a hoot. Then we will come to come to know this structure and be able to approach these pieces in a way that we really hear God's word for them and, of course, um, more importantly for us. So, any questions before I, before we just sort of plunge in? Okay, nothing is popping up. Patty's gone. I could, I, I could, I guess I could be Patty and invent a question for myself, but I won't do that. <laughs> okay, so here we go now. Chapter 1, verse 1, sets the stage for everything that's going to come. For the whole 66 chapters. Okay? This is the, this is the overarching statement about everything that's going to be on this scroll. I need my glasses. The different glasses. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So that's why I put those four kings on that slide earlier. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These kings of Judah. The king, the, these are southern kings, kings of the southern kingdom. Now, if you look at the beginning, this Judah and Jerusalem, that is, that's a phrase used quite often. The focus here is on Judah, um, the southern kingdom and on the city of Jerusalem. And they will be referred to differently. Um, and we'll talk about those when we run into them. Because sometimes I, people trip over these different ways of referring to the same thing. So, and a vision, you know, is, is something that you can... It's... It's something that God has given to Isaiah, right? That that this 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 vision is God given. It's God inspired. It's God breathed. It is this is this is God working through Isaiah to bring this to God's people, and It's going to begin, as I said, with a statement of the problem. Okay? So, 
verse 2. The Jewish, Susan writes, the Jewish Bible calls it prophecies instead of vision. Same difference. You could use a different word. You could, you know, a dream is basically the same thing in, in the Bible. It's just, it's just these are ways that God communicates. Okay? A vision doesn't mean that you have to have seen it in 3D. Okay? It's, it's, maybe that's the tie-in to the word prophecies here. But the key is that this is God given to Isaiah. Um, verse 2. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. So God speaks to creation. For the Lord, for Yahweh has spoken. And here's what God says. I reared children and I brought them up. But they have rebelled against me. Right? All through the Bible, God speaks to us in metaphors that we can identify with, so that we, with things that we can understand. We use metaphors when it comes to trying to talk about God and to talk about God's way. Why? Because God is God. We're not. He is the creator. We are the creatures. This is the only means we have to establish a, a a common understanding and communication because God is so vast and we are so not, <laughs> not vast, right? If you, if you can remember back to when you had we little children, we would use metaphors a lot with them to try to help a three-year-old understand what we're talking about. We'd, of course we would. It's just, it's really how you teach anything, I have to be honest with you, so... God says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know, my people don't understand. Even the ox and the donkey, these, these, these dumb creatures, they know their master, they know where they're supposed to go, but not God's people. Verse 4, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. You know, um, that word sinful, in Hebrew the word sinful means to miss the mark. That's what it's about. The mark being God's way. A sin is a missing of the mark. Um, kind of like in, I watched a, actually the, a little bit of the biathlon the other day on Saturday morning with a cup of coffee. And when they got down on the ground to fire their rifles, a lot of those marks were missed. So, woe to the sinful nation. A people whose guilt, the NRSV uses iniquity, is great. Um, iniquity is, is a word which means... Well, basically what it says, it's, it's sort of gross inequity, gross wick wickedness. A people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, children who have abandoned their parents' ways. For the Israelites, they're abandoned. What have they abandoned? They've abandoned God's way. Where did they learn God's way? At Mount Sinai, in the Law of Moses. They were instructed in God's way. They said they would live in God's way. 
the prophets have been coming for 150 years, starting with Elijah, reminding them of God's way. And yet they don't walk in God's way. That's, that's the thing. To go on in verse 4, they have forsaken Yahweh. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. If you read the book of Kings, what's the book of Kings about? Just time after time after time after time, God's people chase after pagan gods and goddesses, the gods and goddesses of their pagan neighbors, Baal and Asherah and Astaroth and all these other names you run into in the Bible. Um, that's exactly right. They've turned their backs on him. That is the great, that is the great problem. The people have been faithless. Verse 5. Now there are consequences to being faithless. Consequences to going their own way instead of God's way. And it has created big problems, such as Assyria right, on the verge of wiping out the northern kingdom. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion against God? Your whole head is injured. Your heart's afflicted. Dot, dot, dot. Don't you get it? From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is nothing that is sound, nothing that is healthy. Only wounds and welts and open sores. They're not cleansed, they're not bandaged, they're not soothed with olive oil. You're a mess, son. You are a mess. <laughs> That's what, you know, what, when I read through this, just so often the product, this parable of the prodigal son comes to mind. This par the son who uh, forsook his father and took off and spent his whole inheritance until he was a complete and absolute wreck and then decided he'd come home to see what would happen. Well, here we are. All of Israel is just a mess. They've, they are, they're wrecking everything. They're wrecking everything. The ten lost tribes of Israel are, were exactly that. These ten northern tribes that, of God's people were swept away by the Assyrians and never ever reconstituted his tribes again. Verse 7. Your country's desolate. Your city's burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Verse 8. Daughter Zion. Now that means Jerusalem. That's a poetic way of talking about Jerusalem. It's not talking about the women of it. It it should, it shouldn't read. It used to in the NIV. Doesn't read now, and it, that's good. It used to read like the daughters of Zion. No, daughter Zion is Jerusalem. Zion is simply the name of a of a, of a hilltop um, in Jerusalem. There's a couple of hilltops: Mount Moriah, Mount Zion. So, so it becomes Zion becomes uh, a synonym for Jerusalem. So this is daughter daughter Zion's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is left. Like what? A shelter in a vineyard. Like a hut. A hut, no less. 
This is supposed to be God's city, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless Yahweh Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah, which both were left desolate, empty, lost, lost to the pages of history, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, book of Genesis, verse 10. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom, speaking of the people in charge. Now, in, in, at the time this was spoken, 700 years before Jesus, Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. This is the prophet going down the street wearing the sandwich sign saying, pay attention to me. <laughs> and look at what, just listen to what, he, what God says to them. It is profound. Verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says Yahweh? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Now, I would imagine that when people heard this, they were thinking to themselves, but we're doing what the law of Moses said we were supposed to do. We had this whole priestly system and the system of all the sacrifices and all this kind of stuff. And I picture God saying to them, that was a long time ago, and you should have taken off the training wheels now. That stuff was never what it was about. Why would that be what it's about? What it's about is about loving me and loving your neighbor. That's what it's about. So he says, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Right? They are, his, they are God's creatures. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? You should have, you know, you should have, you should have figured this out a long time ago. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, all this stuff that the Jews were you know, they had new moon festivals and other things that you encounter in the book of Kings and the book of Samuel and so forth. God says, I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. It is like Jeremiah, who maybe we'll say a hundred years hence, we'll stand at the gates of the temple and say, you cannot come here, people, and say, well, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, while you are ignoring the widows and the poor and the needy. Don't think that this temple and the sacrifices and all that will wash the blood off your hands. Now... Now, you should know this by now. Your hands are full of blood. So, verse 16, wash and make yourselves clean. How do they do that? What does that mean to wash and make? 
Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Remember when I said a, a key theme here throughout the book would be the doing of right? Just simply do what's right. Just do what's right. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. And from whom do we learn that? God. God is good. God is right. We learn what is good. We learn what is right from God. And if you, if you read the Old Testament law with that in mind, that what you're looking for is to understand more about what is right and what is wrong, the Old Testament law becomes a whole different kind of thing. A whole different kind of thing. And you realize how much there is in it about the protection of the weak and the oppressed and the strangers and the widows and the orphans. He says, verse 17, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Widows, orphans, the fatherless, they were the most marginalized people in the ancient world. Not just among the Jews. They the ancient world was difficult. It was dangerous. There's no social safety nets. You could be left in a place where you couldn't really survive. This is, this is the driving force behind the story of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi needs to get home after her husband dies and her sons die because, because she needs protection. She just does. It's not our world. It's their world. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So, come now, let us settle the matter, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet. That's the blood on the hands, right? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool, like the wool of a, of a newborn lamb. That's what he's talking about. Well, I, used to, I spent a couple summers working in Wyoming during college, collecting samples of underground water. And there were a lot of sheep herders and a lot of sheep. And, and you know, the older sheep had been out there for a while. You know, their coats were getting dirty. and But the little lambs, the young ones, in the early summer, they were white as snow. They were so cute and just white, white, white. So yeah, that's just, you know, these prophets use metaphors and poetry to... Today we might paint pictures or drawings or put on plays or something. But here it is this it is this poetic and the way poetry works in Hebrew is that if you if you're in a poetic section the second line doesn't rhyme with the first line the second line repeats the same idea in a different way so like though they are red as crimson they shall be like wool um, well, I guess that's opposites but that's the idea it's it's a contrast or reinforcement of the idea. 
not not the rhyming of the words. So, verse 19, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist, if you rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. That's where, I don't even know where that's saying. Maybe that's a biblical saying. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Certainly that's the idea here, right? If you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Um, think of Jesus on the night of his arrest when the, the, the um, arresting party comes with temple guards and Peter's ready to take up a sword to defend Jesus and, and Jesus makes him put, him put it down. This is, it's, swords are not what it's about. If you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then in your Bible, surely there's a little, little bit of a just a tiny break here because the 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 translators are trying to separate some of these messages. They're called oracles, actually, but they're, they're some of these messages in a way, because it's there's a bunch of them here just in the first chapter. And they're not in a particular order. They're just sort of compiled here. So, verse 21, see how the faithful city has become a prostitute. That would be Jerusalem. Once faithful, no longer. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers. Your silver has become dross. That's waste. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels. Your partners, they are partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. In the Hebrew law courts, the judge was supposed to hear both sides, was supposed to rule rightly, and was supposed to look after the interests of the weaker party. Right? But in a time of corruption, that's not likely to happen. They're just going to look after the rich and the powerful. Not, not protect the cause of the widows and orphans. And, and, and we could skip forward 700 years and Jesus talk, uses parables about, about widows and unjust judges, right? I just read one the other day. Oh, that coffee's kind of hot now. Okay, all right, very good. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Verse 24, Therefore, Yahweh, Therefore the Lord, Yahweh Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the city of faithful. So, okay, so in that little section, 
God is going to sweep away the evildoers and, and, and return the city to a city of righteousness and justice and peace and mercy. God's going to be Batman, <laughs> I guess. I, yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of what he's saying. You know, who are God's enemies? Those who refuse to, those who refuse to look after the widows and orphans, those who take advantage of the fatherless, those who take advantage of the weak, right? Those who are happy with an unjust world because they're on the top of it. Those are God's enemies. And God says, no, I'm going to sweep away those enemies. And then we're going to, we're, we're going to clean town hall. And, and Jerusalem will again be a place of righteousness and faithfulness. And you can't help but think, I can't help but think of the end of the book. The new heavens and the new earth and the holy city coming, right? A city of righteousness and truth and peace and faithfulness. These promises that God makes, these ways God has of speaking, you can't just look at them in, in the, in the, over the term of a life, of a generation, or a life, or even the life of a nation, or even a, a millennium. We only live a matter of decades. If we're lucky, we might accumulate nine or ten decades in our lives. But the span of history, the span of creation is so vast that, that we do, you can't look at this and say to yourself, well, you know, that isn't exactly what happened, was it? Because, you know, Jerusalem ended up being swept away by the Babylonians. Well, why will it be swept away by the Babylonians? Because the people will have abandoned God. Like I said, it's a story of tragedy. But then he goes on. This is so like the prophets. You don't in in the prophets generally. What I find is that you get these words of warning, right? We're going to have to clean house here <laughs> and restore things, restore the city, restore the land to a city and a land of righteousness and justice and peace and the rest. And God offers up a vision and a promise that it will happen. Verse twenty nine. Verse 27, Zion will be delivered with justice, the, her penitent ones with righteousness. Not everybody's God's enemy in Jerusalem. God has them, but that doesn't mean everybody is. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake Yahweh will perish. You know, those are the kinds of phrases that end up end up sh shaping Christian theology about, you know, are you going to choose God or are you going to choose against God? Are you going to rebel against God or are you going to come to God in faithfulness? Would the mark of a Christian, there's one, the mark of a Christian begins with, is summed up in, Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith. Faithfulness. Trusting God. Trusting Jesus. That's it. 
But those who choose to rebel, those who are happy living, missing the mark, time after time after time, refusing, refusing to repent and strive to live in a Christ-like way, you know, they have chosen their path. Verse 29. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks. Now, who is he speaking to? Okay, go back to verse 28. Rebels and sinners will both be broken, but the, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. So those who forsake the Lord are those who do what? Well, one way, one characteristic is that they find strength in themselves in what they can do and what they can build. Verse 29. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. Now, these are trees and the, the reason Isaiah is talking about trees is because in the pagan religions around Israel, trees and poles played a big part. They were like, you go to Alaska, what do you find? Totem poles. Exactly the same idea. So these are poles or trees um, that are part of pagan worship and the pagan cults. And um, that's what Isaiah is referring to them as. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. Right? The gardens that they have chosen. Nobody made them choose those pagan gardens. They have chosen the pagan gardens. They have chosen the Asherah poles and the totem poles and the rest of it. They've chosen that. Then God says, you'll be like an oak with falling, fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man. <laughs> I love that. The mighty man will become like tinder. You know, tinder is like the stuff that goes up easily with a match and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. That last phrase, that last verse, verse 31, about the mighty man made me think of a poem I haven't used in a while, so I'm going to use it today. This is really, it's a great piece of poetry, but it's utterly wrong-headed, utterly wrong-headed. This is, you could call this, it's called Invictus. You will recognize it, or at least parts of it, and <laughs> it could be called an ode to verse 31, an ode to the mighty man of Isaiah 131, written by William Henley in the latter half of the 19th century. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloody but unbowed, the mighty man. 
Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. The afterlife. The horrors of the afterlife is what he means. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So says the mighty man. <laughs> and Isaiah says, The mighty man will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. And you tell me that there are not on the planet today jillions of people walking around who imagine themselves to be mighty men and women. Yeah, of course. Thinking they're just fine without God. They don't need God for anything. They are perfectly good in and of themselves. They can do it. They can handle it. All the rest of it. They got a nice big fat 401k and all the rest of it. It's all going to be great. <laughs> until they get close to their end when, I don't know, I don't know if the poem Invictus will be what's on their lips anymore when they get to the end, but that's that's God's warning. Don't be the mighty man. Don't be the, uh, don't imagine that you are the master of your fate or the captain of, the captain of your soul. Not true. Not how this reality is put together. This is God's world. <laughs> And we will all die. Period. Paragraph. Look at Steve Jobs. One of the richest men in the world. A genius. All the money in the world couldn't save him from a, a difficult death that he suffered. It's how it is. It's how it is. So, yeah, Linda Waldo says she had to memorize that in high school. Mm, I would like to ask Linda if they had her, if she also memorized Bible scripture in high school. Probably not. Yet that poem, you see, that poem Invictus is directly opposed to the biblical perspective that Isaiah brings. We get that, right? You, we could turn to Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. God's going to turn the world upside down. God's going to bring down the powerful and the mighty. Those who think that they are independent, that they have no need of, of God. Um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, what are those about in Revelation? Those are all about illustrating that we indeed need God. Because ain't nothing on this earth going to keep us from dying. Ain't nothing on this earth that's going to keep us from wars and violence. Gosh, we've surely learned that by now. There's not going to. There's not a utopia waiting around the corner for anybody, anytime, any place. And too many people don't read. They they just they're just. I don't know. I think ignorant of history. I guess. Anyway, enough of that. So that, my friends, is Isaiah chapter one. So, any thoughts or questions? <laughs> Linda says, yeah, Bible verses would have been more helpful. Why is that? Why is it that if you're going to memorize something, memorize this, something from Isaiah here as opposed to Invictus? Because Invictus doesn't match up with reality. That's, that's the deal. 
You know, the Bible matches up with reality because there is a God. There is a God who revealed himself fully in Jesus. There is a God. So if you have a poem in which you put yourself at the center of the universe, it, it's, it may make you feel good because, I mean, who wouldn't want to imagine themselves being the center of the universe, but it's not reality. I'd like to imagine myself having climbed Mount Everest. <laughs> not reality. Not reality. So, so as... Yeah, Bob, I agree with you. Too many people are like that. So I, we're, we've got a little bit of time left today. So let's just get a little ways into chapter two, and then we will come back to it next week. Um, chapter two is, um, the opening portion of it is identical to Micah chapter four. If you open them both, you would put them side by side, you would see that, oh yeah, that's, a, that's the same thing. So what accounts for that? There's probably something that they both are using. Something that perhaps preceded either one of them. Um, perhaps, I could perhaps all day. Perhaps, because um, they're, they're prophets at the same time. Micah and Isaiah are prophets at the same time. So it's hard to imagine that either one had access to the other prophets' writings because they're all just being done. So anyway, check it out. Micah 4, same thing. But this is a real, this is a real good way to finish. Really good way to, thank you. Thank you, Mona. I'm here to be helpful. So this, is the, this will kind of lift our spirits because chapter 1 is all about the problem. We got that, right? He's not done talking about the problem. You know, that's the way, sometimes with your kids, you have to be that way. You just have to, you, you just keep trying to impress upon them that they are, that no, nothing good's going to happen after midnight. So, <laughs> chapter 2, verse 1. Now, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. There's that phrase again, Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days. Oh, there's that phrase. In the last days, my, my, my paraphrase of that is when God does God's big thing, when God is going to put things right, when all this is going to come and be, and be, when all the sin and death is going to be swept away, when God does God's big thing, the mountain of Yahweh's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Nobody will doubt that Yahweh is sovereign over all, right? It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples, many nations all over the earth. They don't know all these people. Chinese, right? Asians, Africa, whoever. Everybody will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law, love God, love others, is what it boils down to, will go out from Zion, go out from Jerusalem, Mount Zion. The word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. You see how those are right there. 
good illustration of how most of that poetry works. First, second line restates the first one a little differently. Verse 4, he will judge, God will judge between the nations. God will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will not train for war anymore. You see? You know, you don't have to be much of a student of history to know that for, over the course of human history, enormous amounts of energy and money and resources and lives have been expended to kill other humans, other nations, other peoples, to defend yourself against peoples or nations that might want to kill you. Indeed, in the, what did the Industrial Revolution create? Many good things. It also enabled us to have armies with a million people in them. That couldn't have been happened. That couldn't have happened before the Industrial Revolution. And as a consequence, we, in the 20th century, managed to kill more human beings in war than anybody had would ever have thought possible. It was the industrialization of war. That's, it's just, that's our, that's our problem. That's our sin. That's chapter one in Isaiah. That's chapter one in Isaiah. And so, Notice who is the, who in, in, we'll close with this thought. Here in chapter 2, in these opening four verses, who is making this happen? Who is making it happen that they're beating their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, um, they're not training for any war anymore? Who, who, who is, who's making this happen? Is this something that we figure out, that the people figure out? No, it's something that God does. The nations come streaming to God. They come learning God's ways. He settles his disputes among them. He settles all that stuff. And they settle down into peace with each other, living under the light of God. So... It's really little wonder to me that a passage like this would also show up in another prophetic book because it's just, it's just so powerful. The images, beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. It's, it's, just, it's just remarkable. So when we come back next week, we're going to start there at chapter 2 and... Um, we will we will go on from there on this journey and we will like i said we will try to keep ourselves grounded in 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 a structure for isaiah so we're not wandering off in a million directions but that we can we can understand kind of what we're of what we're doing um so anyway i would ask patty if we had anything And I see a question. Scott, Larry would like to know if this is the first time God tells his people he wants obedience instead of sacrifices. 
Well, you get the same thing in Micah chapter 6. That's a good question. You know, as straightforwardly, I would have to look at the book of Amos. That is one of the first writing um, book, the first written books of the prophets. But I, I guess I think that I, I do like the way I put this earlier. <laughs> Funny thing that, huh? I like the way that I put it, that really they should have been able to understand some of this themselves. If, you, if they really understood the law of Moses, right? They should have understood some of this themselves without even having to be told. Of course God wants obedience. Of course God wants obedience. Why does God want obedience? Because God is good. And what God does is right. And God wants us to live in goodness and in righteousness because God loves us. So, anyway, good question. I, I may poke around a little bit on that one this week, Larry. See if I can find something explicit for you that before the um, time of Micah and Isaiah, which is, don't forget, 700 years before Jesus. That's a long time. Columbus dis was not even born 700 years ago. So it's a long time. 700 years is a long time for, to get from Isaiah and Micah to Jesus. So with that, unless anybody has any closing thought or question, I'm going to wrap this up in prayer. Um, Patty's not here, so I will, I will do that for us today. As we celebrate my lovely wife's birthday, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we hear your word. Oh, man. Your, your word, it, it's, it is simple, really. We're to love you. We're to love others. We're to come to you, to live in obedience. Um, not in an arbitrary way, just to be obedient, but because you are good. You are right, and we do want to live in lives of goodness and righteousness. It's what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Teach them to obey, Jesus said, because if we will walk in your ways, in the ways that Jesus taught us, we will be living as the people you have called us to be, And indeed, in that, in that, we will now be living this life that you have given us, this life in eternity, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great day, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. You're welcome, Layla. I'm just reading the comments here, right on my, my computer screen. Okay, adios, everybody. Patty will be back later, and you might imagine where we're going to be heading. Bye-bye.